29-18. We're not going to uh, exegete a ton of text this morning, but uh, I do want to give an update on a vision that I believe the Lord has for us here at Red Lane Baptist. And uh, I don't know about you, but I love binoculars, and my girls like binoculars as well. And so they're always looking at the animals that cross through our yard, like all of us. We have critters that cross our yards constantly. And in our house, we like to watch the deer. And so we're constantly looking at deer through the binoculars. But binoculars are wonderful things. I'm about to go on a deer trip, hunting trip tomorrow. So I'll be putting these things to good use. But uh, this is a must if you're an outdoorsman. It doesn't matter if you're a... Um, someone who likes to hike and you're up on the uh, side of a mountain overlooking the beautiful landscape or if you're a bird watcher out in the meadow sometime or somewhere in the springtime or, or if you're like some of us rednecks, you want to be in the tree stand overlooking a cut cornfield, uh, you need a good set of binoculars. But not only do you need binoculars, you need to know how to use binoculars. And so that's one of the things that we try to learn at our house. I'm constantly teaching our girls how to use them. And so number one, they have to make sure that they're properly adjusted to fit their eyes. And so I don't know if you ever realized it, but binoculars have three adjustments on them. You can adjust the width between the eyepieces. And then there's some uh, dioptic uh, adjustments here where you can uh, adjust the lens, individual lenses for people like me that wear contacts that are different. That helps bring things into focus. And then there's the internal lens focused here on the uh, middle of the binoculars. But if you don't have all of these things adjusted in the proper way, what happens? You can't see what you're trying to see. It may bring it closer to view, but you can't see it because it is blurry and it's cloudy. And so that's why we need to be able to use binoculars in the right way so that we have a clear vision of what we're wanting to see. And so as we talk about vision, let me just give you a brief definition, a definition that I've given you before. And the dictionary says this about vision. It is the faculty or the state of being able to see. That's what a vision is. It's the ability to see what is out there in front of us. And so how important is vision? How important is it to be able to see and to see clearly? When you think about vision, good vision will allow you to see things crisply and clearly. Bad vision will will prevent you from seeing things in that way. And so what vision does is it ensures that our day has the propensity to be productive. Now, it doesn't guarantee productivity, but vision does pave the way for, for productivity, to be productive in our lives. It paves the way for us to be productive in our church, that we can know what we're supposed to do and know that we're carrying out what God has put before us. And so as we come to Proverbs chapter 29, in verse 18, God gives us here some wisdom. And the writer says this about vision. He says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Blessed is the one who keeps the law. Now, we know from this passage, as we've looked at it before, that the Hebrew term here, translated prophetic vision in the ESV that I'm reading from, is used some 31 different times in the Old Testament. And every time it's used, it denotes that which is communicated by God to man through prophetic preaching. And so what the wisdom writer here is saying is this, is that we gain our vision from the Word of God. As the Word of God is expounded, as the Word of God is, is cast over us as human beings, we gain a vision of how we're to live our life. And we know that God has called us, that is his people, to be the salt of the earth, to be those who would bring flavor to this life. God's people are then expected to arrest corruption. And as the light of the world, we are commanded to dispel the darkness. We're to be here to make a difference in the world in which we live. See, in the absence of prophetic vision, what happens? Well, the reverse happens. You see a a deterioration of morality. Uh, What happens is people become spiritually defenseless when there is no prophetic proclamation of the word, no prophetic vision from God. So when they turn their eyes from God, they become vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. One of the reasons it's important as God's people to gather together week after week in small groups and in discipleship groups and corporately in worship is so that we can set under the teaching of the Word of God. One of the reasons it's important for you to walk with God daily, reading your Bible, is because you need to be under the Word of God in your life. Otherwise, you are defenseless. And when we're defenseless, people become naturally defiant to God. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us they begin to uh, cease acknowledging God in their life, which leads to the Lord giving them over to a debased mind. He gives them over to their sinfulness, their desire for sinfulness. And so then people become personally destructive as they lose faith in divine revelation they are filled with all kinds of wickedness. That's the downward spiral that Paul talks about and lays out there in Romans chapter 1. Where and when God's people are prepared to see and heed divine revelation, though, what we see is a reversal of the sequence of this deterioration. The Proverbs tells us here that blessed is he who keeps the law. So in other words, prophetic vision, look at this on the screen, always produces two things in our life. It will produce redemptive passion, and it will produce a responsive action to what the Lord has done for us and what the Lord is doing or leading us to do. So God's Word is all about redemption. If you were to open your Bible and look at Genesis chapter 1, you take your Bible, go to Revelation 21, you would see that everything in between those two books is all about redemption. The meta-narrative of Scripture is the redemption of humanity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we grasp and heed the divine word, what happens is it begins to create within each of us a passion over our own redemption. This morning, how passionate are you about the redemption that you have in Jesus? When we were singing those songs this morning, those great hymns of the faith that we sing today, that, that talk about the blood of Jesus, that talk about the victory we have in Jesus, were you just singing or were you singing those songs? How passionate are you about your redemption? Does it make a difference in how you live, how you lead, and what you do? Not only will it cause us to become passionate over our redemption. It will give us a compassion for others because we desire for them to be redeemed as well. So passion leads to our action. Therefore, vision begets venture. The vision of God, the Word of God, as we begin to understand what He wants us to do in this redemptive story, it leads to this grand adventure with the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are on a journey with Him. Sometimes it's a fearful journey. Sometimes it's a scary journey because we don't always know what's out there, but I love the fact that Abraham believed God when he, God said, I want you to get up and go. And Abraham says, Lord, I don't fully understand where you want me to go, but my yes is on the table. Lord, I'm on adventure with you. Look at this statement by T.B. Matson. He said, the Christians who have turned the world upside down for God have been men and women with a vision in their hearts and the Bible in their hands. So as we talk this morning about the vision God has for us at Red Lane Baptist to reach our county, to reach our state, to reach our nation, and to touch the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do it with the vision of God in our hearts, but with the Bible in our hands. The only thing that can transform a person's life is the gospel message of Jesus. I was going to say that's a good place to say amen, but I heard too, the rest of you need to wake up. You got an extra hour of sleep last night. Unfortunately, even though we know that we have a vision that God's given us, even though we have the Word of God, when the vision at times has been clearly articulated, clearly sped out, we sometimes spur or, or spurn the, the vision. We begin to dispel it for something that we think to be easier or even perhaps better. We see this happen throughout the history of Israel. Have you ever read through your Bible there in, in Exodus and, and, and the books that Moses written, and you look at the story of how Israel came out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, and how God did all of these miraculous things, and what do you see Israel doing every step of the way? Grumbling and complaining and fussing and fighting, re leading rebellions and coups against Mo uh, Moses and all of these different rebellious acts, even though they had experienced the grace and the majesty of God in their midst. They had the pillar of cloud by night and the pillar of, or by day and the pillar of fire by night before them. God's presence was there personified in their midst, and yet they still failed to believe God. Time and time again, they chose to not believe even though they could see the miracles. They even went so far as to declare that they wanted to go back to Egypt. They thought that the life they had in Egypt as a slave was better than the life that God would have for them in the promised land where he was leading them to go. Why is that? It's because of fear. We've talked about this. It's because of fear. They feared 
what was ahead of them. They feared the unknown. And so fear has a tendency to prevent us from attempting great things that God would lead us to do. It's the thing that Israel struggled with. It's the thing that we struggle with in our own lives and in the life of our church on a daily basis. So rather than staking their lives on what God had said he would do and what would happen, Israel feared what could happen. You see, fear of the unknown is always a danger to us. It is something we always must wrestle against. Fear keeps us satisfied with the status quo. You see, as a church, we could continue to march on for year after year after year and and just kind of stay at the status quo. But let me just tell you this as your pastor. God has not called us to be satisfied with the status quo. God has not called us to just kind of sit back on our hunches and just wait till Jesus comes back. No, he's called us and given us a vision and a plan to make a difference where we are. And so will we be bold and courageous enough to follow it? Fear. As the enemy of change and the stealer of ambition is the champion, Look at, think about this, of the half measure. It's the champion of the check swing, the almost there. It softens the hard stance, it rounds the sharp edge, and it dulls the shine of a new idea. But courage, what courage does is it changes everything. You see, when we're bold enough and, and, and brass enough to just kind of step out with courage in our hearts and say, Lord, I don't understand where we're going, and I don't understand necessarily how we're going to get there, but my yes is on the table, and I'm going to be courageous, that changes absolutely everything. It's all that the people of God needed. That's all God was asking for them, is for them to simply believe and to trust him. You see, I've known many Christians over the years that live in fear, Every single day. They fear what they don't know. They fear the unknown. They fear what may be out there. They fear what they can't see or understand. They live in fear. They're dominated by fear. Perhaps some of you, even today, sitting in this room, or have given in in your life to fear. When you think about church life, and that's something that always kind of rattles our cage. You know, one of the one areas, perhaps maybe the main area of our life as believers, that we don't want to change is the church. Why is this? Because everything around us is changing, right? Everything in our life is changing. I mean, some of you today don't look as good as you used to look. I'm, I'm right there with you. There's a few things that age or get better with age, and most of the time it's not our looks. We get worse as we get older. We don't feel as good. And so we're bodily changing. Our physiology is changing. Uh, Our kids are growing up, and we loved and cherished when they were young, and all of a sudden they're 18 and leaving the house. It seems like yesterday that my nearly 9-year-old was born, and there she was. I was holding her in my two hands as a 4-pound, 14-ounce little baby, five weeks premature, and I had no idea what to do with this little thing. I didn't even change her diaper for four months. I feared I was going to break her in half, you know, just these hands. And yet now she's almost nine years old, third grader, sitting in the front seat as I drive down the road now. I mean, we've really moved over into a new transition in our life. She's going to be 35 and having my grandkids pretty soon. Everything's changing around us, but we don't want the church to change. That's kind of like our last little hold on uh, stability. But if we as a church don't continue to evolve and change with the times and the culture and and continue to be relevant, not changing the message of the gospel, absolutely never, but becoming always relevant to the people around us so that we are contextualizing ourselves to the context that we live in, if we don't do that, we will cease to be a church one day like so many other churches throughout history. We must, must transition. So this morning... Let me just help you understand that transition is not a bad word. In fact, transition in many ways is a sign of health. Here's a statement that I've given you before. A healthy and vibrant church is always in a state of transition because people and culture and life are always in transition. So we transition with those who are in our church and those who are around us as the church Over the last two years, what I've tried to do is every six months, I've kind of reiterated the vision and expanded a little bit, gave a little bit more detail as things have have transpired or we've gotten close to new goals. And so I want to do that again. I did it last March. We're going to do it again this morning. I've done it for the last two years now. But I want to share with you and reiterate to you the vision for us here at Red Lane Baptist. Here's four things that we know. 
I've given these to you before. But I want for the sake of just driving it home in our lives to reiterate these to us. What do we know about our vision? First of all, God has called us to declare his glory. Psalm 96 makes that very, very clear. Psalm 96.3 tells us that we're to declare the glory of God to the nations. That is our job. That is our responsibility. That is our privilege. And so as a church, what are we here to do? We are here to declare the glory and the majesty of the God Most High and his Son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, God has called us to make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. The Great Commission there at Matthew 28 lays it out before us that we're to go and make disciples of all nations. There's going to come a day when every tongue, tribe, people, and nation will be represented around the throne of glory. And it is our responsibility to make sure that everyone has a spot at the table. God has called us to make disciples here and there. Thirdly, God has called us to proclaim the word of God. And so we gather weekly in in this venue. We gather weekly in small groups. All the time we do that proclaiming the word of God. We don't come here with our own message. You don't come here with our own ideas. We come here setting under the teaching and the authority of the word of God. It's the only thing that can change a person's life. We can't hope to reach people and help them understand how they can have their life uh, made fresh and new because of some new music style or some sort of philosophical idea. No, the Word of God is the only thing that brings life. The fourth thing we know is God has called us to reflect His love and unity through biblical community. We're God's people. We're God's family. We're the body of Christ. We are in community with one another. And so how will people outside of our church know that Jesus has made a difference in our life? It's when they see love and unity within the body of Christ. And so we know that God has called us and placed us in covenant community with one another. And we want to bring others into this covenant community called the church. And so what does this look like at Red Lane Baptist four or five things here. First of all, worship is blended. We've talked about this, and I'm going to reiterate this. Here in our church, worship is blended. Now, there's all kinds of movements today, and I'm not going to say one's right or the other, but there's movements to do all kinds of different ideas and concepts with, with worship, and usually they're, they're trying to, to, to feed a certain preference or feed a feeling or a, an experience. We don't want to do that at all. We want to we join all generations together here at Red Lane. And so our worship is what we call blended. We want to reach to the past. We want to grab hold of the new. We want to sing a new song, Psalm 96 verse 1 tells us. But we all also want to sing those old songs. And so really it's not about the songs we sing. What we want to do in our worship is engage the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls in all of our worship settings. But more than that, we want to engage the heart of God in our worship settings. See, when we gather to worship and sing and lift our voices in adoration of God, it's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. And so is Jesus pleased in our worship settings? Is Jesus exalted in our worship settings? So we we don't really care about what song we sing or what type of song we sing. We want the songs that we sing to have lyrics that exalt Jesus and help us transition our minds and hearts to receive the word of God. Is this about to be Proclaim. So the focus is on faith rather than on our feelings. And that's a hard thing to balance in a church. You see, it doesn't matter what generation we are. We all have our own set of feelings. We all have our own set of preconceived ideas of what a worship setting ought to be. Maybe that's because we have some other church experience background and we're bringing into this. Or it's our own preferences because of what we used to sing as kids. And so we want to continue to sing that. But the Bible tells us to continue to sing a new song. So if you're a young person that likes new music, your new song is older music. If you're an older person who likes the older stuff, your new song is the new stuff. And we across generationally are coming together, blending our voices as we sing songs of all walks of life, all generations, to praise the one Lord and Savior, Jesus. Secondly, preaching is primary. The first mark of the true church is the preaching of the word. You show me a church that doesn't hold high the word of God, I'll show you an organization or a group of people that is not a church. The preaching of the Word of God is primary 
in the church. So the focus of our services, the focus of what we do, is always going to be on the proclamation of the Word. And that's not to prop any particular person up. That's simply to prop up the Word of God. So what we're doing, in essence, is propping Jesus up because He is the living Word of God who's given us a written Word about Him and about us. The Word is the only thing that brings life to us. And so we want our members, we want regular attenders to be built up in the Word of God. So again, our focus is not on feelings. Our focus is on faith. There are many times when you open this Word and you hear it proclaimed or you read it in your personal devotional time that this Word will stomp on your feelings. It ought to. It's a living word, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides down to the joint and marrow of our life. Preaching is primary. Thirdly, missions is our passion. We're a mission-minded church. It's built into our DNA. Over the years, God has called, in recent years, God has called the Dorners and the Haneys. Allison Etheridge is serving in the Arabian Peninsula, even as we speak, because God has called them out of our church. And so we've sent them overseas to do missions. We are a mission-minded church here as well as there. So our desire is for every covenant member to participate in our mission endeavor. My, my goal is to see every covenant member of our church go on a mission trip in the next four to five years, that you would, you would spend the money, raise the money, do whatever you got to do to go cross-cultural on a mission trip. Go with us to Barcelona. Go with us uh, to Africa. Go with us. Uh, we've got some folks that came back yesterday that have been in Puerto Rico for two weeks. That's who we are as a church. We're a mission-minded church. We want to continue to expand our mission's footprint around the globe as we seek to reach unengaged, unreached people groups all across the world. We want to reach the internationals as well that God is bringing to our doorstep, the refugees that live in Richmond. That's why we partner with a church plant, Calumet Church, that is there reaching and working with Persian-speaking people from Afghanistan and Iran and all around those areas here in Richmond on our doorstep, even today. We have an opportunity to participate in reaching the nations because God is bringing them to us. We uh, want to create ways to go to the people in our back doors here in Powhatan rather than expecting them to come to us. I mean, the gospel, the Great Commission tells us to go and tell. It doesn't tell us to, to put a sign out on the road and say, hey, come and see what's going on here. We have to be a people that go to them. We have to be a people that says, I'm not going to wait and hope they come to us. I'm going to go to where they are. I understand that my neighborhood is my mission field. I understand that my workplace is my mission field. I understand that the school that I attend as a teenager or, or a young child is my mission field. My university that I attend is my mission field. I'm going to go to them and tell them about Jesus. God has done great things in our midst. He's leading us to new endeavors. Recently, we have uh, adopted Barcelona as a mission-focused city for us. Uh, just a little bit of background about Barcelona. That's part of the province of Catalonia. And Catalonia has a population of around 7 to 7.5 million people. The vast majority of the people in that region or that province, it's been in the news quite a bit lately. You've probably seen it, but there's about 7.5 million people. Most of them live in the greater Barcelona area. In that greater Barcelona area, there's 25,000 evangelicals. Only 25,000 people in all of Barcelona, greater Barcelona area, 6 million or so people are evangelicals. Those who would profess to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. That is one-third of 1% of the population. That's why we're going. We're going there, by and large, to work with peoples from North Africa, those from Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria and Libya. It's difficult, if not impossible, for us to get into those nations to engage those peoples, but we can go and reach them in Barcelona, and they take the gospel back to their homeland. And so this past July, many of us uh, from our church joined with people from other churches. A group of 17 or 18 of us went to Barcelona for our first trip we hosted a basketball camp. We had 30 or so kids there from the area, from that neighborhood. Next July, we will expand that, and we will uh, 
send four different teams back to Barcelona throughout the month of July. We're going to do an ESL camp, and we'll do the first week, and a science and summer fun camp the second week. Then we'll have an art and music camp, and then finally we'll conclude the month of July with a second edition of our basketball camp. And so we as a church will lead the basketball camp. Our other partnering churches and our convention will lead those other camps, but we are promoting this to all of our people saying, hey, if you're an ESL person, don't wait to go around with the basketball stuff because you probably can't dribble, but you can do great in ESL, go the first week of July. If you're an artsy person, go and serve in that camp. If you like science, go to those places. So we need teachers and all kinds of people to go over to Barcelona this next summer. You say, I don't know about Barcelona because I remember August. 26 days after we got back from Barcelona, a 22-year-old Moroccan immigrant drove a van down the La Rambla and killed 14 people. I remember watching the images there on the TV screen when that happened and just thinking, man, just two and a half weeks ago, three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago, we were standing on the La Rambla. I know how crowded that that road is. I know the tourists, many of you folks sitting in this room know about La Rambla and the thought of a, a crazy terrorist driving down, killing 14 people, injuring 130 others is almost more than we could bear. And so it may be tempting for us to say, I don't know about Barcelona, it's too dangerous, but think about it. It would be easy for us to say it's too dangerous to go back, but that's not what I have heard from anybody. In the face of such enormous lostness, in my mind, in my heart, and I believe from those who've also went with me, we would say we have to go to Barcelona. When one-third of one percent of the whole population is, is, is regenerate, that they know Christ as Lord and Savior, we must go to them. We must not just go to the easy places. The people that are left to reach in this world are in the most difficult of places. Even this past week, we've seen that terrorism can reach out and touch us where we live today. Someone mimicking what happened in Barcelona in August did virtually the same thing in New York City this past week. So it doesn't matter where we live. Terrorism can happen all the time. Will we live in fear or we say, yes, we will go despite what could happen? Missions is our passion. Next, discipleship is our identity. The command of the Great Commission is to make disciples. We know that from Matthew 28. And we've also discovered that discipleship is the goal of biblical community. As we seek to live in community with one another, it's not just so that we can sit around and sing kumbaya. No, it's that we can encourage and grow one another in the faith. That we can make disciples one to another in the faith. So God has called us to do that. And this means evangelizing unbelievers. You see, if we're going to talk about discipleship, it begins with evangelism. If we, when we talk about being a disciple, we can't be a fully developed follower of Jesus if we are not personally reaching people with the gospel. If we're not personally engaged in, in sharing the gospel with other people. It begins with evangelism. And then as we lead them to faith in Jesus, we welcome them into his kingdom and begin to disciple them and help them grow closer and more perfect, uh, more fully perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about discipleship, it always fosters both a spiritual and evangelistic growth. We don't want to just grow deeper in the word We want to grow wider in the word as we involve more and more people into the gospel. And so this morning, as Christians, as members of our church, we should be able to answer two questions. Number one, who am I discipling? Who in my life am I investing in? Who am I pouring my spiritual life in? Who am I teaching the word? Who am I growing growing and grooming into the faith? Who am I helping to become a better leader in the faith? And then second question is, who's discipling me? Who's speaking into my life as I speak into someone else? We need those two arenas to be coexistent in our lives. Everyone should be active in a small group in our church in just a moment. And when we dismiss here, I say just a moment, in about 45 minutes probably. I still got a little bit to go, uh, 15 minutes. But in, in a moment, when we dismiss our service, our small groups will meet. Now, what's the purpose of our small groups? Is it just to go and sit around and listen to a teacher and check that off our box? Absolutely not. 
No, all of us are to engage in our small group time. We're to, it's, it ought to be a discussion as we study the Word of God together, as we ask questions together, as we learn from one another. It's also a time of fellowship, a time of prayer and encouragement. So we want to do three things in our small groups. We want to teach people the Word of God. We want to minister to people's needs. And we want to evangelize or reach the lost. So our small groups are to do all of those things. So every single person ought to be in a small group. If you're not in a small group and you're visiting today and you've been visiting for a while, if you don't connect into a small group, 80 to 90% of you will not be in our church five years from now or perhaps any church. Why? Because you never connected. You can't just hang out in the big crowd. You need a smaller group of people, 10 to 12 or so folks, Pouring into your life as you're pouring into them. Also, you need to be actively involved in a smaller group than that. A, a group of three to five. Th- this D-, D group, this discipleship group. As you're going more in depth, you're a little bit more vulnerable in a small group. You can allow people to be in your life more than you can with a group of 10 or 12 or, in our case, 140 or so. We need to be in discipleship. Discipleship is our identity. Fourth or fifth? I don't know what number I'm on. Fifth. Growth is expected. Growth is expected. You see, if we're doing all of that, growth ought to be expected. As we're intentionally engaging people with the gospel in our community, growth ought to be expected. As we're intentionally seeking to develop others in Christ, growth ought to be expected. See, we're not going to continue to be a little country church in the middle of Powhatan. We'll be a church that is a, a light in this county. We'll be like a city set upon a hill. My prayer for our church is this, God, may your favor rest upon us. That when people, and people are moving to our county, but when people move to our county, we want Red Lane Baptist Church to be a name that people know and recognize. That people would would recommend our church to them. But we'll never be satisfied with hoping they come and see. We're going to be satisfied as we go and tell and reach them. And when they hear about Red Lane, they come visit the favor of God is so resting upon us, it begins to arrest their spirit and soul and saying, this is a people you need to connect with. This is a place where you can grow in your spiritual life. This is a people that can spur on discipleship in your life and family. So as we seek to be intentional, we will intentionally seek to develop others in Christ. And that means we're going to grow spiritually as well as numerically. Professions of faith and baptisms ought to be something we expect to see on a regular basis. should never be in any church something that we hope happens. I don't think any of us, I think all of us in here expect that. But I've served some churches where it was kind of that, well, that may happen someday. You've got cobwebs in the baptistry, you've got cobwebs really in the pulpit, and that's, that's where it all starts. That should never be about us or what we're like. We should be some, a people that expect God to do wonderful and amazing things in our midst. Even still, with all those things in mind, there really are typically two dominant perspectives in any local church. The first pers- perspective views the church as nothing more than a social club. How tragic that we as God's people or those who would say that we're under the name of Christ, the under, under the banner of Christ, that we and our expectation of church would be nothing more than a social club. It's not what church is about at all. We're not a social club that when we get, come here and gather, we just kind of hang out and enjoy friendships or we kind of uh, smooth with others and build networking. That's what, not what church is about. Our desire should never be to simply be entertained or network or to feel good while present. Social club is one perspective. The second perspective is that of a spiritual movement. And when those view the church as a spiritual movement, their their emphasis is not on entertainment. It's always on evangelism. It's always on discipleship. See, they take the teaching of the Bible seriously, and they're seeking to apply it to all of the realms of their life. They understand that the church is not so much about them as it is about God and others. As we come to Matthew 28, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what we find is our marching orders. We call this many times the Great Commission. It's how we flesh out worship. It's how we flesh out preaching and mission. Here's the statement. Jesus has called us at Red Lane Baptist Church to be a church that intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently takes the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. Can we say that is true of us today? 
we ought to be able to say that is exactly who we are. We are intentionally taking the gospel. We are strategically taking the gospel. We are creatively taking the gospel. And we have an urgency about us when we think of those who have yet to hear the gospel. That vision will require us to constantly evaluate our methods and be ready to tweak them when needed. It will require us to get out of our comfort zones, to climb out of our ruts, and to be willing to do something fresh and new for the kingdom. It will require a vision of what can and should be. Now, am I saying this morning that we are all in a rut? No, but you know what we all have the temptation to do? Fall in the rut. To be comfortable and satisfied with the status quo. But we must always keep in mind that we have a mission as God's people to reach those who have yet to hear and yet believe in the gospel. And a mission to train and to develop those God's always brought, or already brought into our midst. So a vision, as we talked about it, is a mental image of what the future will or could be like. And a compelling vision, when we think about how, what does this mean for us, always has four components. A, pr- a problem, a solution, the reason something must be done, and the reason something must be done now. What is the problem? Well, back in September, as we talked about the vast lostness in our nation, we learned that if the statistic that the North American Mission Board tells us that 75% of North Americans, those in America and Canada, are lost, that means in our county of almost 30,000 people, 22,500 people here in Powhatan are lost and unchurched. That means of the 1.2 or 1.3 million people living in Richmond Metro or Metro Richmond, that means 945,000 of those are lost and unchurched. We have a great mission field before us. A vast mission field before us. That is the problem. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are lost and cut off from Christ. That is the reality of anyone who's not in relationship with Jesus. Now, we could sugarcoat that and say, well, they're not really that bad, or they're trying hard, they mean well, they're sincere. No, the Bible says they are dead in sins and trespasses. They are lost and an enemy of God. It is our responsibility to take the gospel to them. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave himself for them. I'm not sure if you are awake this morning because that was a really good place for someone besides Nate to amen. Thank you, Travis. What's the solution? That's the problem. Lostness in our nation is great. Fourth largest lost nation on the face of the earth is America. What's the solution? We have the light of the gospel. That's the solution. We are Christ's witnesses in this dark and sinful world. Jesus has called, he's commissioned, and he's empowered us to go to those who are lost in their sin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the solution? You are the solution. I'm the solution. We are the solution. 22,500 Powhatanians, I guess what we'd call ourselves, lost and unchurched if that statistic holds up. What's the solution? Those of us who make up Red Lane Baptist Church and other sisters churches like us, we are the solution. Why does something need to be done? It's because the Bible tells us that if we don't share with them the gospel and they don't believe in the gospel because of their uh, death, because of their spiritual uh, lack of life, they will bust hell wide open. They will go to a devil's hell. Why does it need to be done now? Because they're headed to a devil's hell. See, we're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow morning. God forbid, as I get up early, early in the morning, I begin to make a 10-hour drive to western Kentucky. Something could happen on that road, and I could meet in eternity tomorrow. I'm not promised the next day. I'm not promised to to live till I'm 96 like Miss Lawson, who we buried this week. I'm not promised that. Neither is anyone else. We must take the gospel to them. We must be urgent in our gospel message. So as we seek to be an intentional, strategic, creative, and urgent church, taking the gospel to our neighbors and the nations, we've laid out a five-year plan. And so let me quickly update you on this. This year, what we've been calling year one in 2017, what we've done is this. We've renovated and updated our children's ministry area downstairs. We've made it uh, a whole lot better than it was. I mean, it's got great signage and, and, and more technology. We've tried to make it mo- more secure in the way we do check-in and check-out and, and the way things are orchestrated. It is a beautiful, beautiful area. It's new and it's fresh. New flooring, new furnishings. And so we've done a great job, those who helped put that together. 
did a wonderful, wonderful job, and we're grateful. Secondly, we have uh, stabilized and solidified our worship ministry. This past year, we were without a worship pastor, and we were in transition the whole time. We had folks that left because of our worship just kind of being in flux. We had different people serving and leading in different ways. But we've solidified that with Nick and, and his leadership and our worship team. And so good things are beginning to happen as we're trying to bolster that ministry, as we're trying to, to be a blended church, which is kind of an anomaly in these days. This year we, we, did, we hosted our second annual Easter festival, which is we're, we're trying to do more community-oriented events. Not, it's still, we don't, we don't base our ministry on a come-and-see approach, but we also don't forsake that. Because those are great opportunities, like this past Sunday when we had our fall festival in the midst of a downpour. We had tons of first-time guests that came through people's faces I'd never seen before. So we had 1,500 to 2,000 guests that came to our, fall, or our Easter festival this past uh, spring. As I said earlier, we sent our first team to Barcelona back in July. We see outside that we've resurfaced our parking lot. First impressions are a big deal, as we've talked about. And so we've tried to make some improvements in, in our parking lot area. We've got better signage, and, and, and parking is more accessible for, for guests. And so we've done all of those things to make it more appealing and helpful for those God is bringing to us. Now as we approach year number two in 2018, here's what we're going to do. Mission teams will continue to be sent to Barcelona. I mentioned that we'll have four teams sent from our uh, Southern Baptist or our SBCV churches, and we'll lead one of those teams again this year with the basketball camp. That's going to be a huge focus for us. And so I want to encourage you to think and pray about going. Even if you don't know anything about basketball, we need help with registration, all kinds of other things. Let the rest of us who somewhat know about basketball. We'll pretend to know about basketball. They don't even know if we don't know about basketball. It doesn't matter. We're there to have a great time with kids. And so pray about going. Think about going. You say, I don't know about the money. I've never known a person. Listen to this. I've never known a person in church to sense God's calling upon their life to go on a mission trip who God didn't provide the resources. Never has happened. I've had people uh, last minute, three, four weeks before an international trip coming, they just feel like, man, the Lord told me to go. I don't know how I'm going to do it. So we just begin to pray, begin to throw out a plan, and God's always provided the resources. Don't let fear of not being able to do something hinder you from doing what you know you should do. This next year, we want to launch at least one small group off campus so that we know we have not just on-campus small groups on Sunday mornings, but we're making it more accommodating for people to meet in small groups outside of Sunday mornings in neighborhoods so that we can use it as a strategic geographic mission rather than just saying, hey, come to us. You and your neighborhood say, I'm going to start a small group in my home, and I'm going to try to reach the people that God has placed around me. We want to launch at least one of those in 2018. We're going to continue to expand in servant evangelism type projects in our county, doing things for people. We've been talking as a staff and other leaders about how can we, as a church who's planted right here in this Red Lane community, better serve the people of this community. Not just our county, but right here, for say, in our Jerusalem, if you want to bring it down to that low. But how can we do something that's going to go and provide a service to others, all with the purpose of earning the right to be heard? And then that brings us to our renovation project that we've been talking about. In 2018, we will begin this project. And what does that mean? Well, we want to give our worship center, this room right here, a facelift to bring it up to date. It's been 30-plus years since we've had a major update in this room. So we want to kind of bring it to 21st century standards. We want to bring all of our senior adults and their small groups onto one level. Right now, uh, some of our senior adults are required to go downstairs after worship. So that means they're going downstairs or coming upstairs. And so we want to bring them up on one level behind us, and that would require our offices to be removed and placed in another venue. And so that would require us to construct some sort of office building or renovate some sort of space that we already have. That's what this project will entail as we move forward. And so on the 29th of this month in our quarterly members meeting, we will bring a presentation and a motion to begin this process. And so we will bring before you a list of names of folks that we believe are qualified that fit what we would be looking for and someone who would serve on this renovation team. We'll bring it to the church for approval on November 29th. I believe that's a, uh, a um, Sunday evening or a Wednesday evening, one of those days. My calendar in my head is not there. So just look at your calendar, November 29th. 
Big question that I'm sure you're asking and maybe have been asking. Why do we need to renovate? Because after all, it's warm and cozy in here. The lights are on. The carpet's on the floor. This pew is somewhat comfortable. Why renovate? What's the big deal? Let me give you some reasons why I believe we should renovate. Everything deteriorates. We talked about earlier how you don't look as good as you used to, some of you. Why? It's because you're deteriorating. I mean, those in the balcony right now are looking at the baldness of my head. You down here below me, you can't see it because I hold my head up. But uh, some of you in the balcony tell me all the time, especially when I look down at stuff, that you see the baldness. Why is that? It's because I'm deteriorating. I'm falling apart. Everything deteriorates. And second, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> in Second Chronicles chapter 24, we see there King Joash, when he became the king, began to restore the house of the Lord. See, the house had been neglected for years, and it had deteriorated, and so it needed to be updated. We see the same thing years later in the, in the leadership of King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles chapter 34, that the house of God had deteriorated, and it needed to be updated. It needed to be brought back up to the standard that is something that would recognize or honor the Lord. And so the Sunday morning worship service, as we begin to understand what this room means for us, the Sunday morning worship service is like the front front door of our church. When somebody's going to come visit our church in this day and age, they rarely will go to a small group first. They're going to come to a Sunday morning worship experience and see what we're like. They're going to shop the church. And so sometimes they'll walk in and be like, well, this church is archaic. It's in the Stone Age. And they're just looking around. And so first impressions are a big deal. We talked about that with the parking lot. When someone drives onto our campus, if they can't find good, uh, clear, adequate parking, the first impression of our church is negative. We always want it to be a positive. So we need to bring things up to date for those who have yet to come, as well as for all of us. Because we can become comfortable with what we know. We need to still look at what's around us and say, you know what, is this the best thing we could do for the Lord? And so things are deteriorating. Let's bring it up to where it needs to be. It's been 30 plus years since we've had that. So we need to update. When you think about this room. I don't call it a sanctuary, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Number one, it's not the presence of the Lord except when the people are here. So this is not like the temple that we just talked about in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. However, there's some principles we can learn there. But when the people of God come, this is where the presence of the Lord is. Outside of that, it's just a room. It's just, in other words, a tool that we use to help disciple others. And we need to sharpen the tool from time to time because it becomes dull. So we want to get all of our, as I said earlier, senior adults up on one level. This is a, a big thing in my mind. I think this is uh, very, very important for us as we move forward, especially because we have a, a large senior adult population in our church, as most churches do, especially the church of our age. I mean, we've been around, what, 171 years. And so none of you have been around that long, I don't think. But uh, we, uh, this is important. We need to get all of our senior adults up on one level so it's best and most easiest for you guys to worship and to be in small groups each and every week. We have some of our folks that just come to one or the other because they don't want to come up and down the stairs. And so that means, as I said earlier, to move our offices out into a new venue uh, office space elsewhere. So that's year two. Year three, renovation. So we'll do most of the planning and Perhaps maybe this time next year or hopefully in the summer, but at some point, later part of next year, begin the renovation, and then it will be completed in 2019. We'll continue to send mission teams back to Barcelona. We'll continue to expand uh, servant evangelism-type projects here in the county. We've talked about in year number three beginning to plan how to plant a church somewhere in North America. I mean, there's vast lostness in North America. We need to send people to plant a church somewhere outside of the Powhatan area. Year number four, in 2020, planning begins uh, to launch a second campus. How can we better reach people here? Does that mean build more buildings? Or does that mean uh, diversify ourselves to reach the growing population on the western side of the metro area? 24, or 2020, we also plant that church in North America. We continue to send teams to Barcelona. We use the land behind us and think, how can we better use this land that's just sitting there growing weeds? So let's develop it. Let's do ball fields or something that's going to help serve the community. I don't know what that looks like. I'm just brainstorming. But we have land. How can we use it to serve the community? And then in year five, we launched the second campus. We continue to do ministry in Barcelona, probably wrapping that up because hopefully it's kind of self-sustaining. And then we choose to go somewhere else. 
And then we begin to send teams to the church plant that we've launched somewhere in North America. That's the five years that we've been talking about as a church. As we move forward, we're just going step by step by step. Look at this quote on the screen from Ralph Waldo Emerson. The health of the eye seems to demand a horizon. We are never tired so long as we can see far enough. What, have I, what I've tried to do this morning is to help you to see far enough. We can't walk around with just what's in front of us the, today. We've got to be able to look out there futuristically and say, what is on the horizon for us personally and corporately? What is God leading me to do? What is God leading us to do as a church? How can we better engage the nations? How can we better engage our own nation, our own people here in America and in North America? How can we be more effective to make disciples here and there? This is the vision that I believe the Lord has birthed in my heart and in many others' hearts. Jesus called us to be a church, again, that is intentionally, strategically, creatively, and urgently taking the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. My question, again, is this. Will you go with me? Will you work alongside me? Will you sacrifice with me? When we talk about renovation, yeah, that's going to be a sacrifice. As we talk about sending teams over, that's a sacrifice. Everything that we do in worship and in service is a sacrifice. Will you sacrifice with me? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that we have a mission. God, I thank you that we're not a church that's satisfied to just kind of sit back and wait till Jesus returns. But Lord, I believe you have birthed within so many of our hearts a passion and a love and a desire to be obedient. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us dream big dreams. And God, I pray that we would attempt great things. And all the while doing everything that we do with our eyes and our ears, focused and attentive to the Spirit of God as he leads us. Lord, is everything that we've laid out here going to come to fruition in five years? I don't know but it's a plan that we can work work toward. It's a roadmap that we can apply to our direction. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, help us to be obedient. And, God, help us to be those who would say yes to the adventure, to the vision that you've placed before us. Father, this morning, as, as I've laid this out, we've talked a lot about the gospel. We've talked a lot about mission, and the reality is is people in church all the time, maybe as members, maybe as guests, that darken the door that don't know Jesus Christ. And God, I can say that with sincerity because I was one of those one time. And so I pray this morning as we go into this time of invitation that you do a couple things in our hearts. That Lord, if there is a lost person, a man, a woman, a child, that Lord, you would just show them today that they need to be in relationship with you. God, help them to realize their sin and how it separates them from the one who loves him so much. And Lord, I pray the second thing you would do for us is that you would continue to, to just confirm in our hearts the challenge that is set before us. And God, I pray we'd be willing to say yes, even though we don't fully see all the things that await us. God, may we not be a people of fear, but God, may we be a people of courage, boldness, and complete confidence in our God. Lord, we loved you, and we ask that you would move in our hearts as we respond during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.